So, welcome to the Argus Hydrogen and Future Fuels podcast. This is the first in a series of podcasts that bring Argus subject matter experts out from a variety of hard-to-abate global sectors and brings in external speakers to discuss industry-specific decarbonisation methods. I have two great guests today. The first is Colin Richardson from Argus, who is a veteran forest reporter and the World Steel Association's Steel Journalist of the Year. And the second is Joachim von Schiel, He's the Global Director of Commercialization at industrial gases company Lind, with a key focus on decarbonisation via hydrogen. Thanks for joining, gents. Let's dive straight into it. Um, Colin, a, a lot of people listening, of course, will be familiar with steel. Many won't. Can you sing the praises of the industry that you work in for a moment? Tell us about its size, what it's used for, its importance, all the good. Um, yeah, so I've been I've been writing about uh, steel since uh, 2008 now, as you say, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a veteran. The amazing thing about steel is just how how tangible it, it is in my eyes. It's more tangible than, than probably any other commodity in the world. We couldn't function without yep. steel. Uh, but the obviously, as the cost of, of carbon to society is increasingly clear and problematic, you know, we've basically carbon has uh, has had no societal cost for too long to the detriment of the environment um, and mm. I, I, as it acquires a cost and an increasing cost as well in certain markets uh, there's clearly a big issue in the steel making industry it accounts for something like seven percent of total global emissions from the energy system and more than all road freight globally, which I think is quite uh, quite unbelievable. And it's the largest industrial consumer of of coal, which satisfies, mm. I think, around three quarters of its of its energy demand. So for every ton of steel that you see produced, and there are ballpark 1.6 billion tons of steel produced each year in in China and the rest of the world, you're seeing an average uh, emission of around 1.4 tons of carbon for every ton of crude steel. So that's uh, you know that's an awful lot of of carbon that is being emitted into the uh, into the environment by the steel making process, uh, predominantly by the blast furnace and BOF route. Um, so this is clearly something that has to uh, has to change. And this is where, uh, you know, things like hydrogen and other exponential technologies uh, are important for the steel making industry. Yeah, no, I'll put on my wonkish econometric uh, glasses and say it's the uh, it's the uh, the skeleton of industrial production. Uh, absolutely necessary to modern life. Um, can't do without it. However, as you know, the externalities are starting to be priced. Uh, I won't go any deeper other than to, than to note that there's obviously two routes to making steel. There's the electric arc furnace, which remelts recycled scrap, and there's blast furnaces. So, Joachim, let me bring you in at this point. Sure. Um, Hi, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much for joining. Um, it's my great pleasure, Tim. Thank you so much. But it's exciting, and I wanted to, uh, I mean, I'll just I wound Colin up and uh, let him go. I'm going to do the same for you. Maybe I can ask, at which points can, can hydrogen be used to decarbonize steel production? Yes, it, it, it is by far the dominant one. I mean, 70 percent uh, roughly across the world is produced by that. And, and in the largest steel producing country, China, which stands for about half of the world's production of steel, it's, it's about 90 percent. And, and of course, that was required when China expanded its 
its steel production so so massively uh, over the over the past couple of de- decades, right? So uh, it is the biggest single source of, of uh, carbon emissions related to steel for sure. And you mentioned some some numbers there and uh, about two tons of CO2 per ton of steel, uh, and that, that comes predominantly from from the blast furnace process. Uh, but then of course is the option of using hydrogen for doing this reduction work instead of instead of using the the, the, the coal atoms of, of, of the carbon and, and that has been done some testing with that but of course it's a, it's a massive change uh, blast furnaces are large we talk about uh, you know uh, sizes of each of them producing millions of tons and so on so we would need an awful lot of hydrogen if, if we should, should start replacing that to, to any larger extent which is then making people look into another alternative way of uh, of doing the the, the reduction in, in a slightly different part of type of, of furnace that that is what we call a direct reduction furnace which has similarities to the let's say the upper half of the of the blast furnace where where we would charge then the the uh, iron ore uh, in, into the top of it and uh, and create a reduction gas uh, today by by, uh, by by using natural gas but in the future using using hydrogen in, in in that type of reactor instead today we have about slightly more than 100 million tons so so some something like you know some a little bit less than 10% of the oil world production of, of, of iron comes this road. But, but we're looking now into can we use this one instead and use hydrogen in that one. So this is the this is a, really the big discussion and, and, and the big opportunity. And we also see, see that at several places that people are, are doing this now also in, in pilot scale testing we have an example with hybrid in sweden that is doing this now on the scale of one ton per hour which is a, a first step in into this road thank you yeah i mean so when you look at this it, it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to look at because when you look at the the, the size of or the or the installed base of steel in China versus other areas, there's an awful lot of new capacity that's come online uh, in China. And so when you look at things like direct redu- reduction versus changes to the blast furnace, it, it, are people tending towards um, changes to the blast furnace because it's a, it's an installed um, capital item already? I, I, you're touching a very important point that um, I mean the, the 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 blast furnace is there. I mean we have all this capital invested there. A blast furnace typically uh, ha- has a life between the relining, so something like between 20 and 30 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's rather unlikely in most scenarios that we, to any larger extent, would see that people start shutting down blast furnaces and replace them with, with, with the DRI production before the end of the life of, of the current campaign, so to speak. So, so I think that that will is likely to go rather much hand in hand with, you know, when when it's time for making a relining of a blast furnace, and we, then we talk talk about big money. We, a couple of hundred million euro or so, something that we plan two years ahead and so on. Yes, 
at that time, it could be the good opportunity to save that investment and instead direct that money as part of the investment that, that you do to change over to, to, to the DRI production instead. So if we were to just imagine um, taking the world today uh, and then clicking our fingers uh, tomorrow um, <laughs> and replacing what we have now um, with, with, say, hydrogen, how much would be required? And I ask you that because I haven't done it on the back of a uh, cigarette packet, but I'm sure you've sketched it out in your spare time. Yes. And, uh, and it's tremendously huge numbers. Uh, and we should be humble about that. So if we look at the total hydrogen production in the world today, and compare that to what we need solely for the steel industry. We, we, we need probably to, to have at, at, at least twice, if not three times more than, than what we have today. But what do you what do you class as today's as well? Because you've got you've got you've yes. got dedicated production. And, and, and that, that, that's really the key here, Tim, because the the vast majority of the hydrogen that is produced today is used within the chemical industry, oil refiners and so on, and some, some ammonia production. And it's only a very tiny little part of that that is what we call green hydrogen. That, mm. that is hydrogen that is made uh, from, from renewable sources. Hydrogen is beautiful when we, when we use it because it's only water as a product, but yeah. we have to look at the other end, right? So, so, so what, what, what type of renewable energy are we putting in there to make this hydrogen? And it's just green hydrogen production today is a fraction of a percent. So yeah. it, instead of talking about the doubling or tripling rather of the, of the total hydrogen production, we should look into those electrolysers that, that, that could produce green hydrogen based on renewable power. And then we, then we would need to, to have a scale up of, of that that is tremendous. We, I mean, we, we need to, to have a growth rate of between 50 and 100 percent of, of that every year or over the coming decades to be able to, to cater to these needs, only if we look at the steel industry. So, mm. so that, that is, of course, such a challenge and not to mention all the the green power all the renewable electricity that we would need to feed into the system to to make it happen as well so i mean given given all that is it is it feasible i mean i I remember when i joined the steel industry it wasn't as big as it is today and this is this is kind of the the, pre the huge uh jump in in chinese production which, which upended everything but is it is it feasible to decarbonize what we have along the 2050 timeline, or is it such a big industry that that's not possible um, given its size today and how much hydrogen um, production is going to have to grow? It is definitely a very challenging target if you look mm. at it in practice. Uh, indeed, it is, and, and uh, I, I think it will be hard to, to reach all the way to, to year 2050. Uh, if we look at there are, of course, things that we can do today. We spoke about the blast furnace. We, we, we as, as a company, are very much involved in, in helping to further increase the energy efficiency uh, using our oxyfuel technologies in reheat furnaces, etc. And I think that altogether, that, 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 that piece, uh, different measures combined, maybe we can reach 20-25% reduction of the current carbon footprint in the steel industry. But the rest, we, we, we need to take with hydrogen and so 
Uh, and mm. it's difficult. We, we need to scale up uh, hydrogen production. We need to have the renewable energy. We need also, and that should not be forgotten, to, to look into how, how do we supply raw materials for, for this uh, DRI production, because that is not the same, really. They, they, they look, don't look the same as, as what we charge into a blast furnace today. And we need to look at how this is fitting into the downstream, because you you know, you cannot take take out the, the BUF, as, as was mentioned, and just replace it with an electric arc furnace that, that easily because they, they have different sizes, they, they have a different pace. A BUF has a much shorter tap-to-tap time, and everything has to be matched with the existing investments that are already there that you want to keep, so, so you don't have to do mm. that over again as well. So there are many, many challenges is this in, in, in this journey. For, for sure. We must do it. It's absolutely clear and we will do it, but but we also have to, to take into to account the, the pace with what we can do it and the enormous amount of capital that w- would also be required here. It is, again, I want to underline that the most important thing first is to increase the energy efficiency. Hydrogen will always be be rather expensive. It is today much more expensive than than, than natural gas, and it will continue to be rather expensive. So from that point of view as well, it's very important that we use as little hydrogen as as possible, for sure. Yep. So I think that, yeah, you're quite right. The efficiency programs, the reductance uh, from biological origins, the carbon capture and storage uh, are all um, key pieces. And the other thing which, um, you know, whisper it, no one really talks about is the fact that the the steel industry, have we hit peak steel uh, in terms of volume? Potentially, um, that there's no guarantee that it would be the same size uh, in 30 years as it is today if all the externalities are priced. Uh, and I have to say that, I mean, I <laughs> long enough in the tooth to remember charts showing US steel pricing at $200 a tonne. Now, today, everyone looks around and says, can we decarbonize? It's going to be costly. Um, but, you know, today, prices um, in, in the States are sort of $2,000 a ton. Um, so, so to an extent, it's not clear exactly what the future is going to bring. Colin, um, you know, talking about things being pricey and, and, and all these kinds of things, can a global market make the transition to green steel? Or is it likely for Europe maybe to run first um, before everyone else? I think Europe is is probably um, leading the way in terms of the the regulations that uh, incentivize uh, steelmakers and and their supply chain to decarbonize. Um, but then you know you look there's a fair bit of of blast furnace uh, technology installed in in Europe and globally. I think uh, Joachim mentioned that you know, if you look at the the life of a BF, uh, you know, the campaign of what, 20 to 35 years or whatever it is before it needs relining. That's really mm. key as to when people are going to, uh, you know, to decide whether to um, to invest in, in an EAF or, or DRI or, you know, whatever the whatever the alternative that they choose is. Um, but I think Europe is definitely leading the way in terms of the framework around uh, pushing people to decarbonize. You've got obviously carbon has an increasing cost via the uh, emissions trading system, uh, and then you have the uh, the uh, carbon border adjustment mechanism, which is um, it, it is designed to you know I guess uh, 
give a cost to to uh, carbon uh, containing steel that's coming from anywhere else in the world and you are already seeing some mills react to that so mm. if we take uh, in in taiwan a mill has already said come uh, i think uh, next year uh, they're going to have a um, a carbon surcharge and we've started to see that within europe as well uh, mills are trying to pass off the cost of carbon uh, into the supply chain uh, to an extent um, and and there are other mills in the world who are kind of gearing up for that you know carbon border adjustment mechanism uh, coming into into place as well that's really important as well because one of the one of the things um, from from the steel industry, of course, is that you fungibility uh, of a cargo, being able to trade it anywhere in the world, is crucial. So, I suppose if if the CBAM comes up around Europe and it starts to overspill into other countries who are trying to get ready so they can continue to export into different regions, that's that's got to be a positive thing. Well, one thing I just wanted to pick up on actually is 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 purely on price. Um, it's I don't want to talk about green premiums or anything like that. I don't think that's the appropriate way of looking at it. But do you think that it will be sectors um, that accept higher prices? Um, you know, one of the things that's always pulled out is that, you know, the, the price of steel um, relative to that of an automobile um, is relatively a small component. And uh, there's been lots of research to suggest that customers are willing to pay um, a premium for um, carbon neutral steel, for example, in these sectors. <coughs> Yeah, I think, I mean, it, I guess it depends on the supply chain. But if you look, let's take automotive, uh, because, you know, it's a, in, in terms of European uh, steel or European flat steel, at least it probably takes what, 20, 25 percent of, of or accounts for 20 to 25 percent of demand. And um, that supply chain is already looking at, uh, at decarbonizing, obviously, the, the whole um uh, EV revolution has upended the the, the automotive sector, uh, and they're really trying to build that kind of uh, carbon neutrality into their supply chain. So I think there are sectors that yes will um, will definitely uh, pay for um, you know uh, lower carbon or carbon free steel, um, but there are probably uh, sectors that that. <laughs> That won't as well and at the end of the day there has to be a realization that um you know i'm not just saying this because i i, I love steel but it can't just be the steel mills that bear the, the the you know the brunt of the cost it has to really be society as a whole you know if we want to kind of uh, if we want to genuinely decarbonize for the you know for the good of you know uh your children's children and my children's children and society and the environment in general then uh you know that cost has to be borne by by everyone but certainly it's much easier for certain sectors as you say you know if the if your selling price is um 600 euros and 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 your and and the majority of that is taken up by the cost of your steel it's much harder if your selling price is uh, maybe 20,000 euros and your steel cost is <laughs> 2,000 euros then uh you know it's uh, it's less of an issue so it's going to vary by sector clearly but there's definitely a a will and that has to be supported i think by the uh, you know the regulators and and governments and legislatures in different regions so, Joachim, I've got to ask you, because as Global Director of Commercialization, you're going to have a, a great steer on where demand um, 
appears to be bubbling up from your experience where is uh where's interested in this you've obviously mentioned um hybrid um over in europe any other regions looking at this is is is, is the u.s starting to look into this seriously um i haven't seen anything but that doesn't mean it's ha- not happening at all well yeah we, we we see some tendencies in california i would say and north america canada is clearly there uh but i, I think that we, we, we might be about to see a slightly different landscape. Before elaborating on that, I'll also say China. I think a lot of them will happen in China. Uh, I, I lived five years in China. I, I will say that we can see that many times really that the, the dates are, are matching the words. They, they are going to do this. They are going to fulfill that. And I think also that, that the, the, the slowing down or the kind of what's I would call a cap on the production in, in, in the Chinese steel industry will probably prevail for a number of years during this decarbonization that is going on. I don't think they will expand. Actually, the production that we look into decarbonization very much, we see how much more scrap they already put in this year in, in, into the processes. But down, down to back, back there then, so I, I think, yeah, hybrid, uh, hybrid then, very interesting example because the 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 real scale up of that process is is going to happen at the mining company LKB at the plant in Yellowar in northern Sweden, uh, and what what so then LKB is going from being a mining company producing DR pellets in, in, into the direct reduction market into producing the DRI or practically the HPI, the hot briquetted iron and sell that. So they take a step forward into the value chain. Uh, and they have the, the conditions up there, of course, with renewable energy, with the hydropower and, and expansion of, of wind turbines that is that is planned and so on. And I think we can see that that kind of things happening elsewhere also, uh, that it could happen in northern part of Africa, for example, and not at least in, in, in countries like Brazil. So if you have an iron ore deposit, that, uh, and today you're, you're shipping out iron ore from that one, but you have excellent conditions for for uh, solar power and 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 wind power there, and some places you can have a nice combination of the two. Then, then I think we will see that, that that you will also start production of hydrogen and and make direct reduction in those places. So you you produce a, a CO2 free DRI. And once you've done that, I think it's not that big a step to to continue down the value chain also to start producing altogether CO2-free slabs. And why not then take next step again, CO2-3 hot-rolled coils. So I think Mm. that we could see a tendency uh, into a change of the production landscape, having more allocation. Uh, geographically into places where you have a combination of uh, ore deposits uh, and access to cheap renewable power. And that would then be a way to cater into uh, the European market, for example, when when the CBAM is in place. Mm. It's actually, it's very interesting looking at the future because if there is a race towards as there will be, um, carbon-free steel, <laughs> low, zero carbon intensity steel, I should say. Um, it, it's very interesting because obviously the scrap guys are much closer to zero um, as a starting point uh, and they can get, get there very quickly using guarantees of origin. 
but the uh, the problem, as you, you mentioned in the beginning, is obviously uh, the lack of renewables um, uh, power relative to the demand that there will be. And it's absolutely crucial that, uh, that steel keeps on producing because it will underpin literally the energy transition. Those wind turbines and, uh, and solar arrays are not going to hold themselves up. Um, okay, uh, I know that uh, yeah, podcast is probably running on a little bit long now, but really quickly, um, just wanted to ask you just how you see or, or, or which markets, because you, you're not just you're not solely looking at um, at steel, uh, but which markets you see as most tantalising for for market growth and decarbonisation, or is it is it is it all steel because it's such a big one to go after and it it's you know it's it's a huge decarbonisation challenge. For, for sure, steel is extremely important. We, we, we also see, see a lot of tendencies in our aluminium industry right now. People are very interested in decarbonisation. You know that altogether, uh, aluminium production has a higher carbon footprint, way higher carbon footprint than, than steel. So, so they, they are a little bit worried now when steel has, you know, hit the headlines about decarbonisation. Uh, apart from that, of course, we, we I mean, if, if you look at our recent announcements where, where about electrolyzer products, we are currently building the world's largest electrolyzer, 24 megawatt in Germany, but we, we have started pre-feasibility about 100 megawatt at the, at the plant, together with ITM Power, our, our partner, uh, for, for a shell facility, uh, also in Germany. Uh, and yesterday we announced about about, about a big project we were looking into in in Oman, 400 megawatts. You see the the scale up is going on there and uh, in in different ways. Um, I, I would say also that you have the different types of mobility, and, and uh, not at least I would say the shipping sector that that is interesting. And I, I think that. We will come more into probably having kind of clusters around the production of hydrogen. So we, we I mean, we, 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 a lot of steel plants are, are located at, at a harbor. So, so we can produce hydrogen there and, and cater to the steel production. But that could also be, be a very, very good point for refueling of, of ships there, for example. Yep. So, so, so I think we will see, see more of these combinations actually and uh, mo- mobility is there we, we have been into refueling stations for mobility for 15 years but of course that is i think electric vehicles is will be the dominant thing happening if you if you look at cars <laughs> yeah so that's the that's i think that's the luina chemical complex you're, you're mentioning in salada 2 uh so sorry sorry salada h2 uh in oman um i'm gonna just colin can i ask it's been a roller coaster. Of course, it's always a roller coaster in uh, in various markets. Um, yeah, we've seen a huge run up in coke and coal prices. Uh, iron ore's been uh, up and then more recently down. Um, where are people's minds at the moment? Is this actually at the forefront of conversation, or is um, is is it as usual pricing and demand and these kinds of things? Where where's the industry's head? I guess it depends on on who you speak to, you know, because we're very we're very market focused. People uh, tend to focus on on the market and the price, but there is, you know, there, I think there's we've seen this huge run up that you alluded to in in uh, steel prices. So let's say the price of you know hot rolled in 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 Europe or North Europe moved up from you know I don't know 500 euros or whatever it was to 1200 euros and then started to come back down um but there's there's kind of this belief at the moment that because of the costs 
that steel producers are have to going to bear going forward. We can never see the kind of, you know, we can never see a return to 400 or 500 euro hot roll coil. I don't know that I necessarily, uh, you know, believe that myself. I think the the, the market is the market and it's going to, you know, dictate uh, the price. But there is an expectation from many areas and many parts of the supply chain that, um we're going to see higher prices going forward because of these increased costs for mills that they um, that they maybe didn't have to bear before or they didn't have to bear to the same extent. But uh, mm-hmm. it's so it's bubbling in the background and there's lots of talk of um, you know carbon surcharges. I think Tata was the first to move with with a carbon surcharge uh, maybe in March of this year. Uh, it's increased it since and then there's been um, there's been some premiums for um, for EAF produced uh, coil um, from from a German mill and then another mill has. Um, has proposed a green steel premium, I think, of 55 euros a ton to the automakers that it's talking to regarding 2022 contracts. So there's mm. this definite, uh, you know, uh, acknowledgement of this cost, particularly by mills. It's just trying to get the buyers to buy into it as well. And I guess one of the arguments at the moment is, you know, if a if a company comes and says, well, we want a 55 euro per ton green steel premium, I guess the buyer refrain would be, well, okay, but sell me some green steel, you know, mm. not just uh, <laughs> not just go and buy some offsets or whatever it is, but actually decarbonize my supply chain help me decarbonize my supply chain so i guess we're a, a, a little bit of a uh a, a tipping point or inflection point uh, you know sort of definitely definitely a, a broader acknowledgement of, of that within the industry good stuff well it's time to wrap this up i've got a, a closing question for you uh joachim obviously there's a there's a huge it's an enormous opportunity to help a hard to abate industries decarbonize between now and 2050 um from Lynn, Lynn's perspective, you must you have around two billion dollars worth uh, hydrogen related annual sales. And of course, as you mentioned yourself, it's a sliver today of production, which is is green. Um, can you sketch out, you know, within 30 seconds, what's your what's your company's decarbonisation plans for existing hydrogen production? Sure, we, we have committed to triple our production to 2028. And I, I think we, we will go beyond that, actually. And I mentioned some up, some scale ups here. So we, we are involved in ITM power that has, has the, the giga plant in Sheffield up and running now can produce a, a gigawatts of, of, uh, of capacity a year now. And, and we are we are into larger and larger projects, as I said, I mentioned 24 and then 100 and then looking at 400. Right? So, mm. so this, this is really, really how fast it is going. And uh, so, so we could probably match uh, together with, of course, many other companies, the, this type of growth that, that would be required from, from uh, when, when it comes to scale up of, of plants, for sure. But we need also, again, we need to work together with, with our customers and, and the steel industry to, to help decreasing the, the energy needs, increase mm-hmm. the, the, the energy efficiency at the same time in parallel. Well, Joachim and Colin, thank you very, very much. Really appreciated that. I could talk for a lot longer, but I must stop. So thank you. That's our inaugural podcast out of the way, and we hope you enjoyed it. Fret not, the Argus Hydrogen and Future Fuels podcast will return. <laughs> <laughs>